0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, we're in Lesson 15, Modern Translations. This is the last lesson that I'm going to be teaching in this series on God Wrote a Book. Uh, there are actually two other lessons that I have that are kind of along the same vein. One of them is about the textual variant at the end of Mark's gospel, the long ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, and the textual transmission of that and where that appears and whether that is legitimate or not. And then I have a lesson on the other textual variant, the the other large textual variant, which is the woman caught in adultery in John 7, I think is verse 53 through 8, verse 11 or 12, somewhere in there. Those are the two longest textual variants in the New Testament. There are some other ones, but those are the two big ones, the main ones. And so every time you read through your Bible, you see that footnote says most manuscripts do not have this or most uh, manuscript families do not contain this section. And so you always wonder, is that scripture or not? How should I treat that? How should I view it? So I have a lesson on each one of those. And in the months ahead, if I have time and there's an opportunity for me to jump into adult Sunday school class and we'll cover, end up covering one of those textual variants. Oftentimes I have the opportunity when... Uh, Cornell's out of town and just can't make it for some reason, or some physical malady strikes somebody else who is supposed to teach. then I get called upon sort of last minute and if I need instead of doing a q and a I'll just grab one of those lessons and teach that. But this will be the end officially of the God wrote a book series of lessons so modern translations I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago or a couple of lessons ago that in the English language there are about three hundred and fifty English translations of the Bible. Three hundred and fifty. Now, I think that that would probably, in order to get a very generous figure like that, that would probably include both revisions as well as paraphrases. Paraphrases are different than translations. So what we're covering today is what makes a paraphrase a paraphrase, what makes a translation a translation, what is a good translation, what is a bad translation, what are the translations to stay away from? So we're going to cover all of that material as well as some of the pluses and minuses, the positives and the negatives with various English translations. Mostly, we're just going to be focusing on the most popular ones and some of the most recent ones. So let's talk about, first of all, translations, revisions, and paraphrases. And we're going to revisit some of this a little bit later on, but I want to give you a few definitions. A translation... Translation translates from the Greek and the Hebrew text, attempting to give the meaning of the words to the nearest equivalent English words. Now, there are issues that come up with this, but if you were trying to write that down, I'll give it to you again. It translates from the Greek and Hebrew texts, attempting to give the meaning of the words of those texts in the nearest equivalent English words. So it's just a translation from the original documents, or the copies, we should say, of the original documents, into whatever language it is that we're speaking. We're talking about the English translations today. A revision is a little bit different. A revision is based upon an existing translation. And the revisers may consult the Greek and the Hebrew text in an attempt to clarify, to improve, or to tighten up an already existing translation. So there are translations which go from Greek and Hebrew right into English. A Revision takes a translation, and usually years, decades later, they try and take that translation, and they try and clean it up and and make it tighter, make it better, and they consult the Greek and Hebrew text in an attempt to do that. And then third is a paraphrase, and a paraphrase attempts to convey meaning rather than the words of the original authors. Paraphrase attempts to convey meaning, and so it translates really the thoughts rather than the words themselves. So a paraphrase really takes an idea of the text and tries to put the idea in the nearest English equivalent. Sometimes using a paragraph where a sentence will do sometimes adding words to it in order to really expand the meaning of it so a paraphrase plays very fast and loose with the meaning of scripture and oftentimes in fact most times a paraphrase is not based upon the greek or the hebrew text of the of the scriptures it's based upon an English translation. So they will take an English translation and expand upon that to try and make it more flowery and more, more readable and, and sort of add to it a little bit. Kind of so you can catch sort of the flow of it and the meaning of it. That's the idea behind a paraphrase. All right. There are two types of different, two different types of translation. This is number two. There are two different types of translation. You cannot simply take a, a Greek, when translation doesn't work the way that many of us think that it works, where you, you have the Greek text and you take a Greek word and you say, what's the English equivalent of this word? And you take that word and you, you write that down. And then you take a, the next word in the Greek and you write that word in English. And you don't, you don't just take a word and find a synonym in English and just translate it word for word for word like that going through. That's not how translations work. I wish it worked that way, but it, it doesn't. Because you, you know and understand that oftentimes a word can have radically different meanings in different contexts, Right? The word trunk, for instance, I use this one commonly, the word trunk can mean a number of different things. It could be the trunk of a tree, it could be a trunk that you put your clothes in, it could be the trunk of a car, it could be the trunk of a utility line, right? So the word trunk has all kinds of different meanings depending on the context in which it is used. So it is impossible to just simply take a word and find an English equivalent and say that's, we're just going to do a word-for-word word translation. You can't do that. Translations don't work that way. Languages don't work that way. And so there are two types of translations. Um, since language involves the use of grammar and vocabulary, syntax, and not one, but two different languages that you're studying, there are two different ways of translating scripture, and these are number, letter C here. For, first, there is what we call formal equivalency, and then there is what we call dynamic equivalency. And here's the difficulty of rendering, uh, here's the difficulty of rendering languages in translation. Let me give you an illustration. In the French, Let me give you a French phrase, and then I'm going to translate it into English. The French phrase, je la cafard." Does anybody else besides me speak French here? No? You do? No, we do. Okay, we do, yeah. I don't speak French. Je la Does Anybody know what that means in French? It means I have the cockroach. I have the cockroach. Now, if you just translated that literally, this is a, a literal equivalency, A formal equivalency, if you just translate it literally, it means I have the cockroach. But if you want to know what it means in the English equivalent, the meaning is I'm depressed. I'm depressed. You say, what does a cockroach have to do with being depressed? I don't know. We take our phrase, he's a little down in the mouth, a little down in the mouth, right? If you take that and you try and translate that into another culture, into another language, maybe even another time, they would say, "How, how is somebody down in the mouth? That wouldn't make any sense to them, Right? So you can't just take a word-for-word translation and catch necessarily the, the meaning of that in the context of the language in which that phrase was used. Let me give you another one, this one from the German language. I'm going to try this one, Angelica. So I, I'm, I'm not asking you to translate this, but if you need to correct the pronunciation of this in any way, feel free. Okay, Here's the here's the German phrase, Morgenstund hat goldenmund. How did I do? I did well? Okay, don't translate it for me. Okay. Does anybody here other than Angelica and is Andrea in here? No, Andrea's not here. Know what that means? Morgenstund hat goldenmund. It means the morning hours have gold in their mouths. That make sense to you? It does. Thank you. Angelica says yes. <clears throat> but it but if I were to say the early bird gets the worm, that would be an English equivalent of that. The morning hours have gold in their mouths. The early bird gets the worm. So you can't just take a word-for-word equivalency. That would be formal equivalency. And dynamic equivalency would be trying to catch the meaning of that phrase in its equivalent in the language that you're addressing, you're talking about, you're translating into. Okay, so there is formal equivalency and dynamic equivalency. A formal equivalency is a word-for-word translation. A word-for-word translation. Dynamic equivalency is more of a meaning-for-meaning translation. So formal equivalency is word-for-word. Dynamic equivalency is meaning-for-meaning. So a formal equivalency is I have the cockroach and morning hours have gold in their mouths. Dynamic equivalency would be I'm depressed and the early bird gets the worm. Now let me give you a a scriptural example of this. In Luke 9.44, in the King James Version, this is a formal equivalency, we read, Let these sayings sink deep into your ears. The New American Standard, Luke 9.44, let these words sink into your ears. The NIV is more of a dynamic equivalency, and it reads, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. You see the difference between that? Let these words sink deep into your ears. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. So one of those is a formal equivalency where it's more strictly kind of trying to capture the word-for-word essence of a phrase. Dynamic equivalency tries to stay faithful to the word, for word meaning of that, but also tries to capture the meaning of it, even if they have to sort of dip into a little bit more flowery and less formal equivalency translation. Does that make sense? A formal equivalency and a dynamic equivalency. Now, translators have a difficulty sticking with one or the other of those translation methodologies. It is impossible, impossible to strictly translate. Think of it on a spectrum. It is impossible to strictly translate something word for word. It Cannot be done. You cannot. You have to translate in, in, Greek, in the Greek language. Word order is word order is far less essential than it is in English. In the English, Bob hit the ball is different than the ball hit Bob. It's all four of the same words in English. But the word order, it tells you the case, it tells you the noun, what the verb is, what the direct object of that verb is, all of that's conveyed in word order. In Greek, it's not it's not as significant as in English. So you might have a Greek word order that would make no sense at all if you translated that just word for word into English. So no translation is able to hold to a strictly formal equivalency translation. Neither are you able to be faithful to scripture and hold to a dynamic equivalency of translation. So every translation is going to fall somewhere on this spectrum and every translation or translation committee is going to have to balance between being, being leaning towards being word for word as well as trying to capture the meaning of it. Does all that make sense to you? Okay, so formal equivalency, dynamic equivalency, and the inability to st- stick to one approach. So. A literal translation of Genesis thirty-three verse fourteen. Now, this is this is the account of Jacob meeting Esau, and Esau says, "Hey, why don't you and your your folks come join me?" After they had reunited there, after the the conflict, they had reunited, and you remember Jacob had sent his wives and his children ahead of him as and offerings for Esau, and then finally, when they saw each other, there was this sort of reconciliation between those two brothers. And then Esau said, "Why don't you come to Sierra and join us?" Well, Jacob says this Genesis thirty-three fourteen. Now, this is a word for word translation of Genesis thirty-three fourteen. As for me, let me lead my gentleness to the foot of the business which is to my face and to the foot of the children that I shall come to see my Lord to see Yeah, I'll read it again just in case you're wondering, what did I miss in that? Did he leave out any words? No, here it is again. As for me, let me lead my gentleness to the foot of the business which is to my face and to the foot of the children that I shall come to my Lord to her. Now the NASB translates it this way. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Sierra. Radically different, right? Now the NASB, which is more formal equivalence than dynamic equivalence, that's the NASB translation. If the NASB had just translated it word for word, it wouldn't have made any sense. You'd never be able to read through that and have any idea what Jacob was talking about. But... They had to go way over into the dynamic equivalent side of that to try and capture the sense of what Jacob meant by all of those Hebrew phrases that he was using. So every translation tries to strike a balance between translating literal words and literal meanings. And sometimes interpretation comes to play in here. Sometimes interpretation comes to play. Sometimes the translator has to, and and if you... Let me finish the sentence before I get into an illustration. Sometimes the translator has to read and exegete the text and say, "What is the author talking about? What is he meaning? What is he? What is the point here? What is? How does this fit into the flow of the argument of the whole book?" So that he might know exactly how to translate that phrase, according to the intended meaning of the author and the understood meaning of the original audience. So sometimes a translator has to be a theologian, an exegete. He has to be somebody who can faithfully handle Scripture and, and get the understanding and the meaning of the text and be able to do so so that he can translate faithfully. Because every translation requires interpretation. You need to know this when you read an English translation. Every translation that you have here, no matter what it is, every one of them is going to require some interpretive judgment calls along the way. Okay, any questions here before we get into the different translations? Oh, and if you want a fascinating, um, a fascinating sort of side education on this, there's, I think, two, maybe three interviews that I did with Gordon and Nancy Hunt. They're the family that attends Kootenai here, the retired missionaries. And Gordy and Nancy were on the mission field translating the New Testament into the Manhui language. They spent seven years just learning the, trying to learn the language of the spoken language of the Manhui people. Then they had to create a written alphabet, and then they had to create written words for them, and then teach them how to read it while they were translating Scripture into their own language. So I think it was three hours of interviews that I did with Gordy and Nancy, and talked about the translation process and the difficulties and the challenges of doing that. Um, he would be that, listen to those interviews; it's fascinating. That family. All right, any questions before I get into the different evaluating the different translations? Okay, you understand the difference between formal equivalency and dynamic equivalency? Now we're going to talk about different translations that are somewhere on this spectrum. Let's begin with the King James version. Um, I'm going to give you some of the strengths and weaknesses of each of these translations. Now, what might be strengths to me might be weaknesses to somebody else, What might be a weakness, a perceived weakness that I would see in the, in the translation might be to somebody else a strength. But here's my evaluation of some of the more popular translations. First of all, the positives of the King James translation. The King James is a fairly good literal translation of scripture. It is more formal equivalency. The King James is more formal equivalency. It's widely used and has been very influential throughout church history. And I think that you saw that over the course of those last two lessons that we taught on this subject as we talked about the history of the English translation. It is an accurate translation. It has nice Shakespearean prose, beautiful language. It does have an authoritative sort of God has spoken feel to the King James. When you read the King James, it sounds otherworldly because in many ways it is otherworldly. It comes from a different world that is different than our, our, ours and the language sort of bears that out. The language bears out a, a different, different style. It's a different syntax almost, a different feel to the King James. So those are some of the positives of that. Some of the negatives of the King James translation. The King James does not take advantage of the wealth of textual information that we have in the text other than the textus receptus or the received text. So the King James translation comes from Erasmus's Greek text produced from five or six different textual sources. But well, we have hundreds and thousands of textual sources now to compare and to contrast. So the, the textual family that the King James translates from is a very narrow field of the textual tradition. And so they didn't have the wealth of information that we have today. Not only just the wealth of texts that are available to us today, but also the wealth of understanding of those ancient languages, the culture of the time, and the different idioms that were used in that. There is so much that we have learned about Greek and Hebrew language, syntax, and grammar since the translation of the King James translation. There's so much more we have learned from our study of ancient manuscripts that the King James translators did not have access to. The King James has some wording that simply does not mean anything to the modern reader. There are passages, I shouldn't say passages, there are phrases and wordings of the King James that mean nothing to the modern reader. And the point of having the Bible in your own language is so that you can understand the text of Scripture. This is what the King James translators themselves were going after when they made the King James translation. They wanted to put the Bible in the tongue of the English-speaking people so that they could read and understand Scripture in their own language. And the fact is the language has changed since the King James was translated, and the King James has not done very well in keeping up with the changes in modern English language. And by the way, I'll just remind you, the King James translators did not see themselves as producing the final and full and inspired English translation of Scripture. They didn't. In the preface to to one of their revisions of the King James translation, they actually wrote in the preface that they knew that more translations would come, and they welcomed improvements to the 1611 translation of the King James Bible. Because they, what they, they knew the goal was to be clear and faithful to the text. That was what they were trying to do. And they knew that others would come along, more information would come to light, and that those would, that would need to be revised and tightened up a little bit. So they were open to that. The King James contains some obscure or misleading words. Now some of these words might, you know, maybe you use this every day. I don't. How be it, holden, per adventure, because that, for that, thee, thou, thy, thine. We don't speak like that. Now, That doesn't mean that you can't speak like that. I'm just saying that none of you here do. I know this because I've had conversations with pretty much everybody in this room. So I know that you don't use a language unless you're a lawyer. You might use how be it in your average day to day doings. The King James also contains words that mean something different today than they did in King James's day. The King James words uses the word allege where it should translate it as prove. See, allege meant something different 500 years ago than it does today. You allege something, that means you're doing what? Does that mean you're proving it? It just means you're alleging it, right? That's why we talk about alleged murderers. That doesn't mean he's a proved murderer. So that word has changed meaning in the last 500 years. Communicate is used for the word share. Suffer is used for allow. Suffer the little children to come unto me. When I was reading the King James translation, I read that, and I I don't know what... Why suffering children? I don't know what it has, has to do with coming unto Jesus. Allow is used for the word approve. Let instead of hinder. Let something happen instead of hindering something. Let and hinder. Those are opposites. Okay. That, that language has changed in the last 500 years. Prevent instead of precede and conversation is used instead of conduct. Much of the grammar of the King James is outdated and inappropriate. Um, and remember that the goal of the King James was to have a Bible translation in the English language that everybody could understand. The King James also contains a few errors of translation. These errors of translation are due to the fact that today we know more about the language and the meaning and the usage of these words than they did 500 years ago. Mark 6.20 in the King James says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Well, the NASB translates that, kept him safe or protected him... The New King James translates it, protected him. The New King James improved that translation, right? Observed him. You observe somebody. You observe John. Herod feared John, so he observed him. He protected him or kept him safe. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. The word appearance is not a good translation of that. That's a mistranslation. It should be every form of evil, kind of evil, but not appearance of evil. And then the King James includes some misleading translations. Acts 17, verses 19 and 22 those two verses use the word Areopagus and the word Mars Hill of the exact same word. It's translated in two different ways: Areopagus and Mars Hill. Is that clear to you? So that's something that could be improved in the King James. Matthew twenty five forty six uses the word everlasting and eternal for the exact same Greek word, which has no distinction in those two words. The King James in Matthew twenty seven verse nine, sixteen verse fourteen, and two verse four uses the terms, the words Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Jeremy to refer to one Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. It translates his name three different ways. That would almost lead one who didn't know better to suspect that either three people wrote the book of Jeremiah or that Jeremiah had three different names. So those are some of the negatives of the King James translation. Now, Again, King James is more formal equivalency. It is an older translation. There are certain positives about it. It's not a bad translation. You're not going to hell if you read the King James. You're not going to hell if you study the King James. None of of that. But we have to be aware that there are weaknesses, particularly with older translations, these weaknesses come up. Yes, Peter? Yeah, let me address that real quick. The question is, what about the King James only claims that the King James translation was, and they would claim this, almost a re-inspiration of Scripture. There are some extreme King James-only advocates who would say that in 1611, God was basically correcting the Greek and Hebrew texts and re-inspiring Scripture. And so there are some King James-only advocates, not all, but some of them, who would say that the King James translation needs to be used to correct our understanding of Greek and Hebrew texts. Right. Maybe he's a King James-only. He doesn't like me. (laughs) Had enough of this. See, there are some King James-only advocates who would suggest that the King James translation should be used to correct the Greek and the Hebrew. If the Greek and the Hebrew differ from the King James, that needs to be corrected, not the King James. That's obviously a very extreme camp. There's there's no evidence and no reason whatsoever to believe that, that the King James translation is a re-inspiration of the text in that way. It was a translation. The translators did not see themselves that way as re-inspired... Agents of Scripture, and it is simply an abuse of Scripture to suggest that anything the Scripture teaches that the King James translation is the only English-inspired version. I have a, I have a book coming written by uh, a friend, Fred Butler, who works at Grace to You. He wrote a book called King James. No, uh, what's it called? King, King James conspiracies. Uh No. I should know this. I did the formatting for him on the inside and helped him get it self-published just this last year, but it should, I was hoping it would be here by today, and it hasn't. I think it's coming this next week, but those will be available out in the foyer, and it kind of deals with basically six of the arguments that King James-only advocates use. Uh, yes? Royal Deception. Royal Deception. The conspiracies, the conspiracies against God's Word. And so he came out of the King James-only movement, and he wrote a book, basically, it's a very good primer dealing with some of those arguments, and, and fallacious reasoning of King James-only advocates. All right, now the New King James. The New King James. The New King James is a 1982 revision of the King James translation. So again, now we're talking about revisions, right? King James is a translation. The New King James is a revision. Here are some of the positives. The New King James attempted to clean up some of the faults of the King James and tried to keep the original King James wording and yet be modern. So it really tries to strike a balance between the authoritative kind of flowery Elizabethan, Shakespearean language feeling as well as trying to be a little bit more modern and more readable. That was the balance that they were trying to strike. The New King James is committed to a more formal equivalence than dynamic equivalence, and it improved some of the mistranslations of the King James, but lost some of the archaic words, the these, the thous, etc., and then all of the pronouns in the New King James, um, those were the pronouns relating to God. I don't know if... Are those capitalized? Anybody have a New King James translation? Anybody use the New King James? Are the pronouns to God and Christ capitalized in the Holy Spirit? I think so, okay. All right, so here's the negatives of the New King James. It is a revision and not a translation. And the reliance upon the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, the wealth of it, is not there. Now, extreme King James-only advocates will say that the New King James is nothing but another perversion of God's Word. So just because they use the King James in the title of the New King James does not in any way woo King James-only advocates from attacking the New King James. They would see it as a watered-down, liberalized version of God's Word, a perversion, another perversion. There is some awkward and old-school language in the New King James that was retained like in like manner and did not heed them, fruit of your womb, etc. Some of those kinds of phrases that were part of the King James, some of those came over into the New King James. And the New King James did not clean up every fault of the King James, but it was an attempt to to make more modern. And I think that the New King James did what it was intending to do, which was to clean up some of the issues with the King James, make it more modern, but also keep that sort of original feel of the King James language to some extent. But again, you, you can't... Yes? They are capitalized, okay. Um, and so the King New King James tries to strike that balance, and I think that they did a good job of doing that. All right, the New International Version, published in 1978, here are some of the positives. Of all the modern versions, the NIV is the most widely used and accepted. Now, I would say that that is a positive in the sense that it is a widely used translation of Scripture. That is one of the things that the NIV has going for it, though I'm not a fan of the NIV, and I would stay away from the NIV. Uh, it is very readable and it is very clear, but the NIV is on the dynamic equivalency side of the spectrum way over on the dynamic equivalency side of the spectrum and they will sacrifice a word-for-word meaning or a word-for-word translation in order to be more readable at times and that is one of the negatives Sometimes the NIV relies too heavily on dynamic equivalency. So, for instance, in Philippians 3, verse 2, where Paul says, Beware of the false prophets, beware of the dogs, beware of the circumcision. He uses the term beware three times there. But the NIV, in order to make it more readable, just says, Beware of the dogs, the evildoers, and the circumcisions," or something like that. It, It cuts out two of the references to beware. Well, if I'm reading the Scripture, I don't like that. I don't want translators not reflecting what's in the text If Paul says, beware three times, I want it, however unreadable it might be, I want to see it in my Bible three times. So because the NIV errs on the side of a formal, a dynamic equivalency, sometimes trying to capture the meaning, even if it means not necessarily recognizing the presence of certain words there, it will err on that side. And I think that that is one of the negatives of it. That's why I don't recommend it. I don't, I don't use it. The NIV also breaks up some of the longer sentences into shorter sentences. And that might make it more readable, more digestible to the English-speaking person, but I don't, I don't like that judgment call by the translators to break up the sentences into shorter sentences. And sometimes they sacrifice meaning in the text for readability in the text. That's one of the errors of the NIV. Yes, Thomas. Yeah, I knew. I was hoping somebody to bring this up actually, because I, I was sitting here as I was saying that I was thinking, should I bring this up, or maybe if nobody notices that, I won't bring it up. So here's the question: Is in the original Greek language there is no punctuation in Greek? So if there's no punctuation in Greek, then how can you fault the NIV for breaking up long sentences? Well, just because there was no punctuation in Greek doesn't mean they didn't have sentences. So though the language, the writing of the language wouldn't have included a period, there was there obviously sentence structure in the Greek language that you recognize. We we mark that sentence structure with punctuation to highlight that, whereas. For instance, in Paul's in the first uh, chapter of the book of Ephesians, verses one through is it eleven or fourteen is all one one sentence. It's one long run, run, run. Try it again. It's one long run on sentence. There we go. It's one sentence in the Greek. Well, you, you can recognize that that's one sentence and put semicolons or leave out punctuation or however it is. But I, I I prefer to see that in my English translation. I don't want it broken up into four different sentences or even broken up into paragraphs. I don't, I don't like it being broken up in paragraphs. All right? And one warning about the NIV. This happened back in 19... I think it was 95 or 96. The NIV publishers tried to come out with the TNIV, today's NIV, and, and that was a huge bomb because they were trying to make the translation gender-inclusive and get rid of the gender-exclusive language like he and him and, and brethren and things like that and make it more gender-neutral. And... And, of course, that was met with resistance back then. That push is still on today. There are translations that still try and do that today. And uh, back when I designed this, that was sort of a new... When I designed this series, this study, that was sort of a new thing going on. So you need to be aware of that. Avoid anything that tries to tries to downplay the gender gendered nature of the language of Scripture. Yeah, so the question is, the fact that somebody tried to do this with a gender-neutral translation indicates there are decision-makers in charge of these translations. Who are those people? And for most of the tra- most of the translations, the, the names of the translation committee are openly revealed. They're, they're not held secret. Um, you do have to be aware of who is in charge of the translations and what influences that and who is affecting that. I think that plays into it. Um, thankfully, most of our modern translations, at least all the ones that I'm dealing with here, are translations by committee so that you have some oversight and revision of that. But it's true, once you have somebody who's making that decision to translate scripture and we're going to allow culture or cl- the politically, the political environment of the day to affect how we're translating scripture, then that's a, that's a non-starter. Yeah, many of them do. I'm not sure who, tra- who publishes the NIV. Is it, I think Zondervan publishes the NIV. Yes. Yeah. Good. So the publishers make that call. The publishers make that call. Who's going to be on that? Because a lot of it is publisher driven. Yeah, do you have a question, Peter? You just want me to repeat that? No, it was Zondervan. Yeah, Zondervan for the NIV. Okay, number four is the NASB. This is the Bible that I preach from and have since 2002. Before I preached, before I changed to the NASB, I was preaching in the New King James. And before I was preaching in the New King James, I was preaching from the Old King James. So there was a time in my life when I was a King James-only advocate. I believed that the NIV was a liberal version and nearly inspired version and and only uh, perverts, pedophiles, and apostates preached out of the NIV. And I don't, of course, believe that anymore. Um, I was eventually frustrated by the language of the King James and my own inability to understand And If I can't understand the text, then I can't explain the text to anybody else. So I switched over to the New King James. And I got tired of correcting some of the translation issues in the New King James, so I switched over to the NASB. And the NASB that I preach out of is not the NASB published in the 1970s, or sorry, 1963, I think, is when the first, when the New Testament was published to the NASB. 1971, 70 or 71, is when the entire Bible was published. Then, in 1995, they did an update to the NASB, and that update capitalized the pronouns that refer to God, and got rid of some of the old archaic language, the these and the thous, et cetera, that the old NAS had. So here are some of the positives of the NASB, and I'm going to make a little bit of the case for this, and then I'm going to make a case for two other translations that I think are of equal or uh, better value. First... The NASB is the product of 58 scholars, and they were committed to being as literal in their translation as possible without sacrificing meaning. And I think that the NASB did quite well on that. So the King James and the New King James over here on the formal equivalency, NIV over here on the dynamic equivalency side of it, the NASB is over on the formal equivalency side. It is more word for word. That I think that they did a good job of trying to, of striking a balance between being formally equivalent and yet capturing meaning and trying to get a good, uh, readable translation. I think the NASB accomplishes that. Everything that New King James tried to do, everything the NIV claimed it was trying to do, I think that the NASB, particularly the 1995 update, does that very well. They used an eclectic text, which means that they were using all of the evidences, all of the manuscript families, the discoveries, all of that comes into play for that. They're not just Textus Receptus or just Alexandrian or just the Vaticanus manuscripts. They're not narrowing the field Then and they take into consideration all of the various textual families and texts that have been discovered. Their punctuation and paragraphs have been changed to clarify the meaning of the passage, which can be helpful. The personal pronouns referring to deity are capitalized. I mentioned that. And this involves some interpretive judgments. One of them is coming up in Hebrews chapter 10 in this warning passage, in the warning passage of the apostate, where it talks about God judging the one who who um walks away and considers as nothing the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Who does the he refer to there? Well, if it refers to, if it's lowercase h and refers to the apostate, then it means that you can lose your salvation. But if it's uppercase h and refers to Christ being sanctified by the blood of the covenant, then it means you can't lose your salvation. So obviously how you translate that pronoun, he, is going to play into your theological construct and your understanding of that whole warning passage. Um, words were, words that are added, that are not in the original, but are added in the English to make it readable and to clarify. Those were put in italics. And the thing I like about the NASB is they're not afraid to be word for word literal, even if it means that the phrasing is awkward. The other thing I like about the NASB is that they, um, are not afraid to use theological words like propitiation, justification, sanctification, etc. And there is a dignity to the language of the NASB that I like. I don't think it is so modern that it feels like you're just, you know, speaking eubonics down in south-central L.A., but at the same time it's not so archaic that you feel like you're having a conversation with Shakespeare. I think the NASB kind of has a, a strikes a good balance between those two extremes. So here are the negatives. There are none. No, I'm just kidding. I don't always like paragraph divisions in my translations. I don't always like that because sometimes, when you just like chapter divisions, they're not always helpful. Sometimes chapter divisions are helpful. Sometimes verse divisions are helpful. Sometimes they're not. But when we break the passage up into paragraphs, we're breaking it up. We are trained to read paragraphs in terms of unit of thought. So sometimes the paragraph divisions are not helpful. That's the translators putting a paragraph division in there. Sometimes it's accurate. Sometimes it's not. And we have to be aware of that when we're studying Scripture. But that objection, I think, could be made of a lot of other translations, modern translations as well. The King James and New King James just divide it up in the verse. Each verse begins at the beginning of the, at the head of the column, the left-hand side of the column, and in the middle of a sentence, it'll just break off and go to the next verse. It doesn't try and group the words into units of thought. Sometimes in the NASB, a bad translation or a slightly inadequate translation, which you're going to have today in the message. Today there's a word that we're dealing with in the text today that I think could be a little bit stronger in the NASB, would be a little bit better. There are sometimes... Bad translations that persist in the NASB. I've had to correct some of those or mention some of those. We've gone through Hebrews, and it's it's not like I never come across something where I say I think this would be translated better this way. One such example is 2 Timothy 3.16, which uses the word inspired. I wish the NASB would get rid of that word inspired. It doesn't mean inspired in the sense that we talk about inspired. It means God breathed. And ironically, the NIV uses the term God breathed. It's the dynamic equivalency of it. It uses the term God breathed. That would that's a formal equivalent translation of Theonustos. So I wish the NASB would follow suit. And I have found some areas in the NIV that or the NASB that have needed to be corrected. Overall, I think, I said at the time that I wrote this little series of lessons, I think it was the most accurate translation available and it it just is i think it is more accurate i'd be willing to die for this it is more accurate than the king james the new king james or the niv the nasb um now let me let me talk about two others because there are two other very good translations that have come out since i originally wrote out the notes for this so one of them is the esv the english standard version the benefit of this is that it's free it's not a it's not a published translation that is controlled by the, like the Lockman Foundation which which publishes the the NASB or Zondervan which publishes the NIV it it is a free translation it's available it's, it's wide it's very it's very liked and loved in reformed circles or calvinistic circles rightly so because it is a very good translation that is not afraid of of getting into some of those areas of theology when it translates the text and i think that that's a good thing um, the ESV is more formal equivalency and it stays away from dynamic equivalency. The language is a little bit more modern than the NASB, so it's a little bit more spoken English like we speak it. Um, but it is a very good formal tra- equivalency translation. And if I were, if I were preaching the New King James, if the, if the ESV had been available in 2002 when I went from New King James to NASB, I would have gladly jumped from the New King James to the ESV. But, I'm on this road right now, and it's too late in the game. i got more years behind me than I do ahead of me probably, so I'm not changing anytime soon from the NASB to the ESV. But I do often consult. Almost every week I consult the ESV, just because I want to see how the ESV puts it. Um, And sometimes it will highlight um, things that need to be addressed in the preaching or the handling of the text in the way that they will uh, translate something. Then... Just coming out this last March is the LSB. This is the Legacy Standard Bible. Now I'm going to spend a, a couple of moments. I'm going to read to you a, a couple of short passages out of this, so you can see how this reads. The LSB, the Legacy Standard, is the product of Master Seminary um, down in Southern California. This is John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, the seminary that they oversee. This is the product of Master Seminary. It is the, the, the Lockman Foundation who owns the rights to the NASB gave to Master Seminary the ability and the right to their text to create an update, a revision of the NASB. Well, when Master Seminary got that authorization from the Lachman Foundation to do that with the NASB, they had a couple of things in mind that they wanted to do with this new translation. One of them, of course, was to tighten up and make the NASB better because MacArthur's preached out of the NASB for years. That's his preferred translation, so he wanted a translation that was going to kind of read the same and be a formal equivalency translation, be very readable, but also improve it in a couple of very specific and intentional ways. One of the ways that they improved it very specifically and intentionally is in the New Testament, when you come across the word uh, bondservant or servant, when it is the word doulos, they translate that consistently as slave. That is important. Many English translations, modern English translations, have avoided the term slave because of its political or racial connotations. And so the the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates that word as slave, and it does so consistently through the New Testament. The other good improvement is the fact that in the New Testament where the word tongues occurs, speaking of the the gift of tongues, they will translate that as languages. That is a dramatic improvement because tongues are not just babbling, nonsensical, angelic, incoherent gibberish. They were languages, spoken languages. I'm speaking in a tongue. It's the English tongue. Earlier I spoke in the French tongue. It's the French tongue. After that, I spoke in the German tongue. A tongue is a language. So when they translate it as, as languages, when it's appropriate in the text, then that is a huge improvement. Then the other thing is in the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, which is the covenant name for God, which we would pronounce Yahweh, they actually translate it as Yahweh in the Old Testament. So oftentimes we are used to reading in our Old Testament of the Lord doing this the word of the Lord is pure etc well that's the, the Lord is not a translation of that Yahweh me, Yahweh is God's name when God God gave his name to Moses and to Israel this was his covenant name and he expected us to know his name and so all the way through the Old Testament New Testament we read about the name of God well his name is Yahweh it's not Jehovah it's Yahweh and so the LSB translates that, the Lord, as Yahweh in the Old Testament consistently, and it kind of, here's the benefit of it, it kind of adds a little bit of flavor to the to the hearing of the word. It it strikes the hearer, especially those of us in English who are used to reading Yahweh um, as the Lord translated in the Old Testament, it, it adds a little bit of a different, more personal flavor to some of the passages. So in my Bible reading through the year, I was going through the book of Psalms recently, and I usually do like the first 50 in a chunk, and so I was reading through the Psalms, and I thought, I'm going to do it in the the LSB, because right now they don't have the whole Old Testament, by the way. They have the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. The rest of the Bible, the entire Bible will be published in October. That's the word on the street. So probably by the end of the year, at the absolute latest, they'll have the whole Bible out. But I have here the Psalms and the Proverbs, so I'm going to read Psalm... 19, this is a familiar passage. I'm going to read Psalm 24, which is also a familiar passage, so you can hear how some of the familiar phrases that you're used to just reading as the Lord, they'll probably strike you a little bit differently. Psalm 19, for the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Their lion has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world in them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is just the description of creation verse seven: The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true, they are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults and keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. A little bit different, isn't it? You're used to reading the Lord, but when you're just reading through an English translation, you read the Lord, it doesn't stand out to you as something other than just a reference to a deity. Now the name of God is there in the text for you. It's a little bit different. Psalm 24. Another example. The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Pay heed, O Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up yourselves, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. See, it's just a little bit different. And I think that that is a good thing. That is a, a, a dramatic improvement and a good improvement. Now, we don't... Let me get your question in just a second. We don't necessarily like that right away when we read it because there's a whole group of, of Christians who have abused this idea that they think they need to take Hebrew-sounding words and phrases and and bring them in. So it's not Jesus, it's Yeshua. And they have to do the whole Hebrew thing. And they have have robbed from us something that is precious, and that is an, an understanding of the name of God and who He is. And so this, I think, is a good attempt to try and take some of that back. He gave us His name not because He doesn't want us to pronounce it or to use it. He wants us to know Him by that name, His covenant name. So it is completely appropriate to approach him in prayer and call him Yahweh. That is his name. And he said, this is my name, and he gives it to us. Not so that we can never say it, but so that we can know him by it. It's personal. You and I have an intimate relationship with God. We know his name. He knows us by name. We call him Yahweh our God. That is our God. And this will, I think, in the New Testament, there will be phrases where there will be places where the name of God, Yahweh, is used of Jesus in the New Testament. And so, when we have an opportunity to read the New Testament in the LSB, it's going to bring some of that out, and you're going to see the Deed of Christ pop right off the page, as it would if you understood the original languages and were able to read the original languages in that way. Is there another question over here? Yes. Uh, well, Jehovah is an anglicized attempt to to do the same thing with the Tetragrammaton. So it's not. It, we would. You wouldn't say Jehovah Yahweh as if they're two different things. It's just Yahweh. Jehovah is an English attempt to try and add vowel sounds to the Y H W H. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So these are paraphrases, and this was the next um, thing I needed to get to. So, yes. Do I know anything about the NASB 2020? I do not yet. Um, I know that that is like a parallel attempt because while while Master Seminary was working on the LSB, the NASB, the Lockman Foundation was also making some revisions to the NASB 2020 to the NASB 1995. It's the NASB 2020. So I know that there is an attempt to update that into modern language, but I don't know anything about it. I haven't read it yet. I haven't seen it, had a copy of it at all. And I'm not even I haven't even taken the time really to research what were they trying to accomplish with that update. So regarding paraphrases, now paraphrases, right? Formal equivalency, word for word, dynamic equivalency, thought for thought, and then paraphrases are over here on this side here, where they're not really interested in Greek and Hebrew text and being formally equivalent. They're really interested in just trying to be flowery and and give you sort of a meaning and an idea of it. Now, there are, there are good paraphrases that try and be very restrictive, and then there are paraphrases that don't care anything about theology. The Living Bible, J.B. Phillips, the Amplified Bible, the Message Bible, the Good News Bible, the Word on the Street Bible, and probably a hundred other ones will all be paraphrases, but those are probably some of the most well-known examples of a paraphrase. The positives, paraphrases, can sometimes help you kind of catch the sense of a passage. But I do not recommend studying out of a paraphrase, nor would I recommend that a paraphrase should be part of your daily, normal Bible reading. It should not be. Just, if you're reading something, the King James, the NIV, I'm not quite sure, reading a paraphrase can kind of help you say, okay, I, this is this guy's attempt to try and explain a little bit about what that means, and so it can be helpful with that. Um, Woost, Kenneth Woost, has a good paraphrase, paraphrasistic translation of scriptures that I think is probably one of the best paraphrases. Um, but again, paraphrases are not translations. They're they're trying to catch the sense and the ideas behind it. So I, I think it's more, far more of a liberal approach to translating scripture. I wouldn't even call it a translating scripture because many paraphrases are not based upon Greek or Hebrew at all. They take the English translation and they just expand upon that without consulting the Greek or the Hebrew at all. Those, I think, are radically dangerous and you need to stay away from them. The Message Bible has has become very politically um, geared to translating Scripture in a way that's politically acceptable. They downplay some of the passages dealing with homosexuality and certain sins in the Message uh, paraphrase. Um, the Living Bible came out years and years ago. It was the only Bible I had growing up in my home. Uh, it was just a Living Bible, and once in a while we'd sort of wipe the dust off of it, and I'd crack it open and read a couple of sentences and put it back away. Some of the negatives of the uh, of the paraphrases is meaning is nearly always sacrificed for readability, and the difficult the 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 paraphrases will show you the inter, the interpretation and the biases of the translator. I use that term translator loosely. The paraphraser, the biases and the theological leanings of the paraphraser will come out really quickly in a paraphrase because oftentimes they are going to steer away from things that might be controversial. The other things that paraphrases do not do is they, they do not use words that we ought to learn what the meaning of those words are, justification, sanctification, etc. There are theological words that we do well to know the meaning of them and to know how they're used and see them in Scripture and understand them. We should. And paraphrases will stay away from that because they're not interested in getting into nuances of theology. They're interested in just being a readable sort of assessment of what Scripture says. Um, you would do better to read J. Vernon McGee's running commentary on Scripture than you would a uh, paraphrase, in my opinion. Peter, the Good News Bible is a paraphrase, so it's not a translation; it's a paraphrase. Again, having one on your th- this is how I would use a paraphrase. I don't, I can't even tell you the last time that I consulted a paraphrase unless I was trying to critique a paraphrase, because I have the, my NASB now. I have the LSB and I have the ESV. And then I have very readable, good language tools that we can use. There's just no need for me to consult a paraphrase. And I know that some people will say, well, I like to use a paraphrase because it just makes Scripture sort of personal and makes it understandable. Okay, um, look, I don't mean this to sound harsh, but let's mature to the point quickly where you can use a translation. Stay away from the paraphrases. Get into a good translation. Start learning the language. Start learning the text of Scripture. You will be well served. You will not grow in your faith if you are reading, if what you are reading is milk and pablum, you will not ever get to the point where you can choose steak and potatoes. You have to, you have to mature past a paraphrase. Do so quickly. Get out of the paraphrase. Get into a more formal equivalency translation. I would recommend the ESV, the LSB, or the NASB. 1995 or 2020 update, I guess. Those would be what I'd recommend. Yes? Yeah, that's a good point. A good study Bible with a good solid commentary would be a good way to wean yourself out of reliance upon a paraphrase. And, of course, we give out to all of our high school graduates here the MacArthur Study Bible. The MacArthur Study Bible is available in New King James, in I think it's in NIV, I think it's an ESV, and I know it's in the NASB because that's normally what we give to our graduates. Uh, those are good notes. In fact, if you read the text of the Bible and every footnote and every study note in the MacArthur Study Bible, you'll know more than 99% of pastors that are alive today and preaching in churches across the country, and I'm not exaggerating. You will be more theologically trained than most people who stand in pulpits today if you just are familiar with the MacArthur Study Bible notes. The theology there is great, and I know, I'm certain, that the LSB will be available as a MacArthur Study Bible probably by probably by the end of next year at the latest. Uh, Yes, Peter. Yeah, the recommended list of Bible translations would be ESV, the English Standard Version, the NASB, 1995 Update, and I'm I'm holding off judgment on the 2020 because I haven't seen it, or the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. The Legacy Standard Bible in calfskin just feels so nice. and It just smells like God's Word in there. It's available, New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. Now, to show you how how tight this is to the NASB, the passage that I'm preaching on in Hebrews, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good needs, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but all the more so as you see the day approaching. Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That passage reads identical in the LASB as it does in the NASB. There's absolutely no difference. It's the exact same passage. I compared those. So you're going to see a lot of that. This is going to be an improvement on the NASB. So... This might work its way into my preaching in the years to come, possibly. All right, yes, question real quick. We're way over time, but go ahead. You've been told the 1977 edition of the NASB is better than the 95 edition. That would probably be a judgment call by people, probably whether they like the language. The 95 edition got rid of the these and the thous and some of the more archaic language that the earlier NASB had, so it might be that somebody who liked that liked the more flowery language. Um, as far as tightening up the the usage of it, I've never... Uh, tightening up the translation itself, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody, any scholar make that claim that the 95 update was not an improvement in in, in every way. But I don't own a 1977 edition of it. It came out in 1963, I think, and the New Testament, the, or sorry, the full Bible came out in 1970. So I don't know if there was a 77 revision of that. I do know that the 95 revision is the one I use. It's one I'm most familiar with.